Hello, Career Cohort. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Emily Wong, founder of Words of Distinction. We talk about tools for achieving career success, inspirational stories about overcoming career and life challenges, and how we can recalibrate our perspective to better enjoy the journey forward. My guest today is Adam Korn, who's going to talk about the importance of building engaging and relevant onboarding, training, and development programs. But this isn't just for professionals in learning and development. If you're a job seeker or employee, you'll benefit from our conversation as well. Adam gives advice on how to talk about learning and development options during interviews and how you can help shape programs within your current organization, even if it's outside your official business unit. For the past 25 years, Adam has been designing, developing, and implementing innovative safety and security programs for government agencies and tech companies across the globe. In 2015, Adam transitioned to the private sector, where he has spent the past seven years building cutting-edge global physical security programs for Google, Fitbit, Facebook, Meta, and GoFundMe. You may recognize Adam from season three, episode six, where he shared excellent career transition advice based on his own experience moving from the public to private sector. So without further ado, let's just dive into our conversation. Hey, welcome back, my friend. Great to be back. Awesome to be here. So I want to start by saying that when I work with clients, I always discourage them from saying passionate about or using passionate because it can come across as disingenuous. But I've known you for a few years, Adam, and I think I can say honestly that you're passionate about learning and development just based on my conversation with you. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been mocked for it my whole career uh, in, in a good way. <laughs> I, I teased for it. They're like, "Wow, you're really into training and development. Uh, take it down a notch." So often, what I hear. <laughs> Well, that's too bad because I, I love that energy that you bring. So actually, I want to know why are you so passionate about it? Absolutely. I, you know, I know exactly why, um, why I have a calling towards training and development and training other people. And I think it comes from really when I was younger, I had just, you know, and I guess I still have dyslexia and I, I had to really struggle to find a way to navigate the education system. And I hear about other people struggling with dyslexia and students, young people struggling with dyslexia. And I, um, at a young age, somehow I sort of figured it out and I, I don't know how I just sort of had a brain that kind of figured out the workarounds or what I had to do extra in order to not only, you know, be on this on par with my, my, my cohort and the, the students I was with my peers, but I found a way to accelerate. And I always was really obnoxiously good at school, even though I had dyslexia and it, it's, it's weird because, uh, the, you know, when I first was diagnosed, um, maybe it was because of I was like hyperactive or something. And then, you know, when that was discovered, my the the people who discovered it really prepared my parents for the worst and said this child's going to have a really hard time, you know, in school most likely, or there'll be lots of struggles. And then I, you know, did the opposite. I ended up I struggled for a few years, and then they're like, "Wow, he's actually really good at school." And probably what I should have really worked on was being better at sports. And uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think that's the, that's the root of why I'm passionate about because it really changed the course of my life. And I find that other parts of it as I go into adulthood uh, and I find that, you know, 
people who are invested in training and development, they're the ones who are, you know, really going to accelerate and do well. And if you have a lot of training and you have a lifetime and a culture within yourself of training and development, you're going to be more successful, I think, in life and in your career, and you're going to have more job security. And I think a lot of not only people fail to see that, but also corporations um, fail to educate and train their employees appropriately. And they don't promote a culture of education and development in any way, shape, or form. So it's not taken seriously as a company because it's seen as a cost center. They don't see the value in it because they're just sort of doing what is urgent and not what's important. And you know, I think that it's just a, a tremendous gap that I know that I can fill in terms of understanding how can I build training and development and even onboarding and awareness programs at companies. And not many people can do it well, including many instructional designers that are currently out there. So I know that I have something unique to offer. And I'm fortunately, I'm, I'm really, I'm doing it in my career and I'm doing it in my private business that I'm setting up right now. So Adam, I think it's really interesting that you said that some companies think of training and development as this cost center, because one of the things that a good candidate could ask as a question is, what's your training and development like? And that is a benefit to the candidate for two reasons. One, if they have multiple offers, this could go into their decision-making process. The other thing is that when they ask that question, the hiring manager hears this is somebody who is really committed to personal development, professional development, and who doesn't want that kind of person on their team, right? I agree with you. I think, you know what, I'll give you maybe a better set. I tell a story. So, you know, I was applying for a job and I got through everything. And I remember they really wanted me for this position. And I just, you know, would ask the question, so what types of training and development programs do you have? And so I'll walk you through what the hiring manager said. He said, we have tons. It's phenomenal. It's fantastic. You know, it can't be beat. And in your 30-minute interview, you can't challenge them. Be like, well, specifically tell me what. You'd have to say, mm-hmm. oh, that's great. You know, and then you move on to the next <laughs> thing because you want to talk about yourself. And then mm-hmm. I got my offer letter and, you know, and I spoke to like the, you know, recruiter about my first day and all that. And we're kind of looking at the offer letter and working through the original recruiter to sort of, you know, go to a salary negotiation. And I said, you know, what is your training and development opportunities? Uh, do you offer like additional money so I can get training outside the company? And she said, we don't do that, but we have a fantastic, phenomenal internal program. You're going to learn all about it in your first day. Don't you worry about a thing. It's going to knock your socks off. And then I started my first day and I looked at what they had and they did have courses, but they weren't impressive. They were bought from a vendor, which is what most companies do. And they were very canned and not focused on my job or even the company. They didn't have like the company logos. They weren't neat or clean. And they were frankly too long. They covered like everything you want to know. Like they'd have a cool title and they would say something like how to have a difficult conversation with a subordinate that's a mouthful and they would have a title like that. But then you'd actually take the class and you wouldn't find it relatable at all. And you realize they had a robust list because they purchased a robust list, but the training wasn't going to help me in my position at all. So I think it's an easy thing for employers to sort of talk past and and say that they do have something, but it's not training they've ever taken themselves. That's a really good point. So digging a little bit deeper to find out really what kinds of examples. And I think it's fair to ask in that, you know, I I know what you're talking about, right? You want to get through the interview process and you don't want to be contentious, right? But I think it's fair to ask that question, right? And it sounds like something that you would recommend people ask. They dig a little bit deeper. 
And it sounds like one of the things that you find lacking is probably kind of that bespoke nature of a program. What fits this particular person or this business unit within this company? A lot of companies, they should really promote training and development as one of the great benefits that they offer. I find that, you know, there's great things a company can give their employees, such as like a salary, you know, compensation, their benefits, and um, ideally a good manager or a great manager in some cases. But the other benefit they should really tote or really offer is a fantastic onboarding training and development program. And a lot of companies just fall short in doing this because I think they look at training as, you know, as I said before, like a cost center or something that no one truly likes or wants. But the truth is it's a fantastic gift. And I think that these companies need to promote a culture of learning and a culture of development. And I have yet to work at a company that truly has. And I've worked at you know quite a few of the largest, most powerful tech companies in the world. And while they say they have a very good training and development program, maybe they do for very specific teams, such as like engineers. But outside of that, I found the training to be truly lacking at places where I've worked previously. So what do you think would keep people engaged in your training program? What do you think makes your program great? I think what makes a program great is that it's actually interesting and it's learner focused. It creates training products and experiences that really engage the learner and make the learner excited and interested in, in the content they're absorbing. And I also think that the training programs need to be very timely. I think every single training experience should be like take the principles of a TV commercial. If you look at a TV commercial, all the best TV commercials that I'm sure from your childhood, you still remember. You still remember the jingle. You still remember the logo. You still remember the music, the look, the feel, a funny joke that was embedded in there. I still like say, that, you know, there's all these really impressive jingles that commercials have, you know, and they often have a theme. So I think that the training experience, it should be a very deliberate there should be a, a consistent theme in all the trainings that a company delivers their employees. There should be a jingle. There should be music. There should be all these things that help with the way people remember things. Because all the people that do research on effective commercials for television or what you see on YouTube or what have you, it's fascinating psychological study data that you know a lot of research has been put into. It's because they want people to remember not only the brand of the product that they're being told to buy, but also what it does for them. And these commercials are extraordinarily effective. So I think that what I've always done and what other instructional designers and learning and development professionals should do is they should take the lessons of TV commercials and YouTube commercials and try to figure out which are the ones that spoke to them the most. And then you design your training, your onboarding training and development, internal communications, you know, awareness communications all around the principles of what are in TV commercials. And the, there's really those five principles. You know, Be clear and concise. Use a, a really kind of fun jingle, if you can think of one. Have a theme that kind of carries through through all your training. So training is delivered in a very similar format. So the brain likes sort of a repetitive nature of, of, of concept. Um, keep it simple and focused. So just tell them what they need to know so they can do better at their jobs. And don't cut any corners. Make sure that the quality, the sound quality, the production quality, the articulate of the instructor, everything is just refined and perfect. And those are the five principles of very, very concise, effective commercials. You apply those principles to the learning experience, whether they be in the classroom, e-learning modules, instructive videos, um, gamification, 
that sort of thing. You can always bring in those principles and make them more effective by implementing them. I would think too that the principle of how do you want these people to transform as well? What do you want them to have at the end of this, right? And I wonder, like based on what you were talking about, like these really canned programs is they're just kind of putting these things out there, not thinking about this is what I want these employees to be able to do at the end. I think that they aren't really being clear with several things. I think that, you know, the first thing someone really wants to know when they're taking a training is answer the question, what's in it for me? So companies are instead saying this might be what's best for the company, or they don't even say why this training is mandatory or compulsory or why they would love you to take this training. So the first thing you need to say, you know, speaking from one adult to another adult in terms of adult learning principles and education is you've got to explain to them first out the gate where you say, here's a training, what's in it for you? And you have to make it in a very clear sentence. But then the human adult brain goes to the next question. How long is this going to take? Yeah. So the very next, so the very next, you know, visualization. I, majority of what, how I train, I train, I make animated cartoon videos, and that are very short to the point that have really funky and cool music, really funny graphics, and they're loaded with jokes. And I don't do it because I just like to joke around at work. Joking around or making your training experiences humorous makes people pay attention, and your brain will remember better when it makes you feel any emotion you know, negative or positive. So I'd much rather than feel a positive emotion versus a negative emotion. I don't want to bum people out with my training experiences, but I want people to watch my training experiences, feel an emotion. And uh, even though comedy is hard, you put thought into it, you make it funny and, you know, laughing and feeling humorous is, you know, is an emotion. And because you're feeling an emotion while you're watching something, your memory retention will be better. So I think that the way I make my training modules different is out front. I say, here's what's in it for you. Don't worry. Here's how long it takes. If you tell them this training module will take seven minutes, an adult will give you seven minutes of their undivided attention. Uh, they'll say, okay. And then they'll be able to look at it and focus for those seven minutes. But then you say, here's what's in it for you. This is how long it's going to take. And then the next slide says, you know, here's exactly what you're going to learn. And it will give three to five very clear learning objectives. And each one of them will be relatable to the learner's experience. And it will be something that will be solving a problem. You know, So they will want to pay attention. But just at that point in time, there's, there's a risk you run. If at that point, the person might just trail off or they might be distracted by something else going on in the room. So that's when you got to put in your joke. You know, the first, so I always try to like, after I get those logistics out of the way, I call the joke the hook, and I put in the hook, and I say, well, what is the joke? And there's some subject matter out there that, you know, it's hard to find the joke in. But if you think really hard, or if you speak to really people who are really funny, or if you do what I do, and I have a cheat, you know, there's a comedian that I'm friends with, and I pay him uh, to sometimes find the joke in it. And, you know, comedians are very skilled at that. I think that I'm a pretty funny guy, but I have friends that are way funnier than me, and that's what they do for a living. And they, they find the joke for me, and it's something I never thought of before. You know, I'll give you an example of something that's very hard to joke about. Something that's very hard to joke about is something like sexual harassment. But companies are required to have a sexual harassment training. So the joke in sexual harassment is the fact that it still exists. Like, we live in an age where people are just trying to go to work. They're just trying to, like, live their lives. They're just trying to do a good job. But then they go into a work environment, and the fact that people still don't know how to behave in a workplace, 
and they don't know how to treat people, others with respect, or they can't contain themselves because they find someone attractive. That is <laughs> humorous. Like it's, it's, that's the joke. Um, or, or people are people who say inappropriate comments and they don't have the wherewithal or the sense of what not to say in the workplace. That's the joke. And so you kind of like find a clever way of highlighting the fact that it's, it's cynically funny, but it's still funny that, that it's still a, an issue. And you have to kind of bake that into your learning experience. And you want to make it, of course, appropriate and, and mature and not like light of, of the problem you're trying to address. But there is a clever way of embedding jokes in your learning experiences. And then you go right to the content, but you try to like spice in little senses of humor or tones. If it's something they absolutely need to learn. Another thing I do in my video instruction is whenever it's something that the learner absolutely needs to know, like the most important thing, I put in a tone, like a ping. And you don't have to like tell the learner to listen for it. After watching three or four of your videos, they will notice every single time this training has a really important thing to say, there's this weird auditorial ping that, you know, that makes a noise. It's like a Pavlovian. And they, it's interesting when you I'm watch awake. them. Yeah, they immediately wake up. So it's like you see them yeah. watching your trainings. And this is what I did when I worked at Meta for three years and we were making training videos. I would put these auditorial pings in the most important parts of every training. And so just in case like the individual is not paying attention for the whole training, when it pings, they immediately will wake up. Something in their brain will let them know that they should pay attention just to this one thing. And you put the most important thing after the ping. So it's very psychological. And you, you really take your notes from TV commercials. And you'll see, if you notice, you watch TV commercials very carefully, you'll see there's a lot of psychological tricks put in there. And you just have to dissect them. I watch TV commercials all the time on TV, but also on YouTube or what have you. And I, I, I watch them and I take notes. Or if I watch a commercial and don't take notes, but I'm singing the jingle like a few yeah. days later, I think about childhood, like commercials that don't even exist anymore. I still kind of sing. This fizz, it keeps coming to mind. Yeah, or like one one eight hundred USA loans or buy Menon, you know, or you know, you know, there's a million of them. Got milk? Like, there's so many yeah. different interesting. Like, I still remember the visual representations in that commercial, and I haven't seen those in like two decades. So it's very powerful. And so you know, instructional designers, I think, are often not ideally trained. They're learning from theories that were created before people had personal computers. When they even when they go to modern universities, they graduate and then they kind of launch these these training programs. And that's why most of you, I'm sure quite a few of your listeners who have worked for companies, they've taken miserable trainings and had miserable training experiences where they have to take some mandatory privacy training of some kind. And it's a 45 or one hour e-learning module. And it's so dry and uninteresting. And there's no element of it that's fun or joyful. And that's a missed opportunity because every single training experience and learning experience can be fun and joyful. You just got to find the right instructional designers to do it. Yeah. By the way, I do have uh, HR folks who listen to this program. So I think this is really helpful to them. The other thing is, so when you, you're talking about the little ping you were putting in there, I, anybody who's yeah. giving a presentation, that's a really cool tool. I love that yeah. to wake you up. And I don't think you mentioned this. Maybe you did at the beginning of the, the show. You said that having dyslexia made you better at these training programs. And I'm wondering if it's because of that visual element that you bring or, or auditory, anything other than just reading something. Yeah, I think I'm quite visual, but I think my brain is quite contextual. And when I would be listening like in a lecture at school, 
And there was something that I needed to remember or something I thought that was important. And I wasn't very like wonderful. And to this day, I can't take notes fast enough. I just can't. So I, I almost, my notes are like, are almost like pictographs in a sense. And I kind of developed my own note-taking style. That's you know, shorthand's nothing. You know, lots of people do shorthand, but I'm also an artist. You'll see I'm a painter, you know, as, as you know, Emily, you and I have been friends for years. You know, I'm a painter, but I, you know, I'm an artist and a lot of my notes had doodles in them, but I knew what those doodles meant. And if it's something I really needed to know that was important, I would find in the margins the way to make a joke out of it. And I would try to find the look for the humor or related to something else. And a lot of times it was like an inappropriate joke because I was like, you know, young <laughs> when I went to school. And uh-huh. that's nothing that, you know, probably no one else would find funny except for me. But I think that helped me tremendously. And also, I found training and learning uh, very painful. Like it just was like, ah, you know, as a kid, as a kid with tons of energy, and I love to run around outside and hike and play in the woods and all that. I grew up in, uh, you know, Maryland, you know, kind of in the woods. And I just preferred to be outside. So sitting in the classroom was very hard for me. So I would have to find a way to make, you know, learning fun and interesting. So I would make it fun and interesting in my own mind, in my own head. And I think that's helped me as an adult, you know, even when I entered the workforce. And there's so many times I've had, you know, when I worked for the government, had to sit through uh, briefings that were hours and hours long and intense meetings. And you're just sitting there, they're, they're forcing you to go to all kinds of really, really kind of dry, you know, meetings and you have to make them as entertaining as possible. I would just be like taking notes and doodling the entire time to make it a joyful experience versus like an arduous, unpleasant experience. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, earlier that your first experience was training government agents, right? Like back way back when, when you're working for the government and you were seeing people starting to doze off and you wanted to be respectful. So you kind of put the onus on yourself, right? You wanted to bring these people in. You wanted to engage them, right? That's how you got started. I'd say that advanced my story. My story okay. in education got started. My first job out of college, I got a job in Japan teaching English to uh, Japanese kids that were in you know junior high school and high school. And I realized you know very early on that the best way to keep their attention, and this is very rural Japan, and a lot of them would talk about how they didn't want to learn English because they just weren't planning on leaving that prefecture. But it was a part of their entrance examination in a university. And then the school told them they had to learn English and they begrudgingly didn't want to do it. And, you know, I was developing curriculums and teaching these, these Japanese kids who are like absolutely delightful, but they definitely like were exasperated with, I don't want to deal with learning a whole new language. Like my life is hard enough, you know, because the Japanese education systems know, no cakewalk. And I realized that when I would make it as funny as possible, and because I made it funny, kids would want to understand the joke. So I had kids that wanted to learn English so they could understand what I was joking about because all they saw was I was laughing at my own jokes. So, you know, the comedy turned quite physical. And I'll give you like a quick example. There was a, a one young girl and she was sleeping during my English class and she had her hair like kind of leaning over the desk. And I had some like scissors off the desk and I was just telling her in English, I'm going to cut your hair, but it's okay. I'm going to give you like a really good haircut. She was just like, <laughs> you know, she, know, she knew me at that point knowing I was joking around, yeah. but like the physical comedy of just being like, no, 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 it's totally fine. Don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. And then later on, I realized she was using those things as, because it was like an emotional reaction, I guess, because she thought it was funny. But I remember her saying like those same words, like, hey, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. It will be a very quick haircut. There was like all these physical things. And I brought that with me. I started teaching in the government 
for a while, I taught at National Defense University, and I was teaching very dry subject matter on counterinsurgency uh, to military officers, intelligence officers, and that sort of thing. But there are people, too. They doze off in class. They get bored or tired. And some of the subject matter is quite you – know, it's, cynically, it's quite mathematical. A lot, of, a lot of war is mathematical in nature. Uh, and there's a lot of statistics involved, um, and there's a lot of ratios involved, and there's lots of economics of war. You know, when you watch a documentary on World War II – they talk about the tactics and, and kind of the, the weaponry and the experience, but they don't talk about like the economics of war. And I had to teach quite a bit of that. It's very dry material. So I had to figure out a way to make this engaging, and as interesting as possible. So I slowly did that as I taught at National Defense University and thought of creative ways to convey information through a variety of different types of media. Mm-hmm. And back then, your options were limited. Right. Very limited. Yeah. Yeah. There was actually, there were people trying. We did have a learning management system and it did have capabilities. Uh, people just weren't utilizing them. So I, I really kind of called the vendor who made that learning management system and I said, how can I pour gamification? Because that was around at that point in time and they walked me right through it and I was able to put that in my classrooms. That's very cool. Adam, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I think this is something we did not know about each other is that I also taught in Japan. No way. And I also, I had different groups. Like I had the business people and I had teenagers. And the humor was so important. And one of the pieces of humor I remember is that I was 25 and they thought I was really old. So they made a lot of jokes about that. And I was, "Eh, okay. You know, (laughs) it's kind of funny, but they knew they could talk to me about just about anything. So it was just a lot of fun. They were some of my favorite students. I just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. And there's a thousand stories from that period. So in your experience of training and putting together these programs, did you ever run into any challenges? Yeah, I, I ran into I have plenty of challenges. Uh, the biggest thing is, yeah, at, first off, it's a cost center. They say like, you know, Adam, you know, I kind of made I did it that they were like, take it down a notch. I've had people say that before. Like, Adam, we don't really care about training. It's just checking a box. Just sort of churn it out. It doesn't need to be, you know, the Sistine Chapel. Just churn out some training and and then launch it. And I said, well, it's not going to be effective. And I wasn't asking for more time, but sometimes I was asking for additional resources, like better software or a slightly bigger team so we can handle the needs of the various customers and large organizations as I was building training programs. And I've, you know, that's been tough when they said, no, we're not going to give you any more resources or, or they just let me know they didn't really care about my program. And they were very like vocal about that because they just didn't care about training. They didn't have a positive experience with training, you know, at various times in their career. So they didn't see it as an added value. So they didn't share my opinion that training and development is important. They just don't care because they're just handling the day to day. The other times I've had managers that kind of shut down, you know, I could have the resources and everything I needed to do what I wanted to do. But I had managers that just didn't have the foresight, so they wouldn't approve of things I wanted to do with training. And I give you an example: it's at, you know, not where I'm currently working. It's phenomenal. The last company I worked for, I had a manager that I wanted to create, you know, VR, virtual reality trainings, and we had all the money, and we had all the internal software, and we had all the people power, everything we needed to do in order to launch a VR training experience for. 5,000, you know, security guards that, you know, they would put on a headset and they could walk through various scenarios like de-escalation scenarios, active shooter scenarios, you know, any sort of thing to train a very large security workforce. And I had everything I needed to do it. The only thing I needed was a supportive supervisor who would say, 
yes, you may do that. I think uh, proceed. I'll give you top cover. He just didn't really understand it. Or he said something along the lines of, I don't like those headsets. They make me nauseous or they make me dizzy or something along those lines. Cause he was only talking through his perspective and he just didn't understand. Like there was nothing I could do to educate him or to convince him or influence him. It's just something he didn't understand. And he also just didn't really see a lot of, you know, he wasn't convinced training was very helpful, even though it really was. He, out of the three years I worked for, I mean, I don't think he ever looked at my training products, but the training products, all the officers did, and they absolutely loved it. And it really guided them and let them and set them up for absolute success in the way they did their jobs. So mm-hmm. it's not a matter of like bitterness. It's just the way it was. And I'm not yeah. saying this, uh, this supervisor was a bad person. I would say, you know, he is a common individual. Um, And so Mm -hmm. he just wouldn't let me launch this program. And I think this program, you know, uh, it would have been extremely effective and interesting and innovative. But that was like a particular struggle that caused me a lot of like heartburn in a a previous role. That was very difficult for me to know that I have this great idea and it would be an amazing training experience and would be innovative. uh, But I just didn't have a supervisor say I could do it. And he told me actually to stand stand down on it because it just didn't really make sense to him and his world. So we've, we both agree that training and development is so important to a candidate who's applying. What would be some good questions to ask a potential employer beyond, do you have training and development? What would be the second question to dig a little bit deeper? I think a really good question to ask is kind of the question I asked when I was, you know, when I was in that process is, can you give a stipend? Is there a stipend you can give me to get training externally and really try to negotiate that into your contract or into your offer letter? Often, if they don't have a program like that already, they'll say, we don't offer that and we can't offer it for one employee over another employee because we want equity of benefit. So we aren't willing to do that. So if they are unwilling to do that, you know, I think you should, you know, really make it very clear that learning and development is a big part of what you really want, desire. So as you're mulling over their offer letter, you'll say, can you send me more information or can I speak to your instructional designing team or or your L&D team to kind of go over like what types of trainings they have in store for me and how I can develop as a professional? And, you know, just a matter of like collecting more information and make that known over and over again. And maybe it's something they could kind of bake into your offer letter in terms of giving you funding for additional training, or they might really, they're going to drill down on you. They'll say, what do you want to learn exactly? And you're going to have to expose an area where they might see you as you're admitting that you're potentially weak, but you could say something, there's always room for improvement. I want to learn to be a better people manager and you can identify, you know, identify the course out there in a, in a private entity that offers that training. So you're not just saying, I want a stipend for training. You say, I want to take this training, or I want to get this credential, or I want to get this degree. And tell them that in the negotiation process. And so maybe it's if it's something very specific to you and you have to give your business justification, build your business case of why it would make you better in your role, I would really stress to make that because they're not going to always hit your number. Whatever number that you say that you want in terms of compensation, they're not going to hit it. That's when you say, you know, I'm willing to accept it, but would you please throw in this additional training and learning experience for me that would really kind of make me whole? Then I will sign the offer letter tomorrow if you can do that. And I would think that if they really want you, they are going to put that in there. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I'm also really big into, you know, when you come into a new company to learn what those needs of the different 
business units are. I've had conversations with people about this. I've had my own episode about this, but I, I think that that's really important as well. And maybe, you know, maybe that's another selling point. You know, I, I really want to understand what the needs of these other business units are so I can work in coordination with what they're trying to achieve. There's actually an opportunity here that employees can be empowered to help their learning and development teams grow. Because every single learning and development team, if they're good, they do something called a training needs assessment. And a training needs assessment is an evaluation to see what the various teams need to be trained up on in order to be more effective and efficient at their jobs or selling more product or whatever the objective may be. So lots of these learning and development teams, they use something called ADDI. ADDI stands for Analyze, Design, Develop, Implement, and Evaluate. And that's the way they build and construct these training programs. So the first letter, A, which is, you know, for ADDI is, is Analyze. And a part of Analyze is doing a training needs assessment. And training needs assessments are continuous. They happen quite regularly. Many companies that happen quarterly or the, the L&D team will conduct them quarterly because the needs of the business change over time. So if you, as an employee, you can proactively reach out to your L&D team and you could say, hey, I understand that you're probably conducting some training needs assessments at times. Is there any way as a person, as an operator, or as an individual in this company I'm working, can I work with you on the training needs assessment in any way and support it in any way? And maybe mm. by doing that, you can influence it. And they might reach out to you and say, look, we'd love to interview you as a part of our training needs assessment as an employee in the trenches where are some gaps? Like, what are some training you think that you need and your cohort need in order to be better at their jobs? And next thing you know, you're having a discussion with a learning and development team, and you're telling them exactly what you need to learn and how you want to learn it. And you, as the employee, I know the previous companies I worked for, Google and Meta. Now, when I did that, uh, I found the learning and development teams were extraordinarily appreciative, and I was able to influence the learning experiences that I would see later on in the following quarter. Oh, what an opportunity. You know, if they're even coming in at the ground floor of this company and they can influence how this training is going because they're giving that feedback, right? I mean, somebody who's brand new to the company, what a wonderful opportunity. And the fact that you say that they're they're grateful because they want to tailor it, they want to make it useful, right? Yeah. I find uh, learning and development teams do want to hear from their employees. They do want to work with you. I always welcomed it as an L&D professional. And, you know, I look where I currently am. I'm at GoFundMe and they hired me and I am the director of security. But when they hired me, I reached out to the learning and development team. I said, hey, look, I'm also an instructional designer like you. We speak the same language. Can I build some trainings using the softwares that we have? And can I help you build some trainings? And can we start doing them together? And I can kind of show you what I've learned and I don't want to get into your space or move into your lane, but I would love to work with you. And then the, the L&D team at GoFundMe was amazing, and they're, they're fantastic, phenomenal people. And so they were very open to hearing what I had to say. And then I was so active with it and having such a great time with it. And the next thing I knew, I was producing a lot of trainings for the company. And over a period of time, I was told that I'm, you know, they said, hey, Adam, you're pretty good at this training stuff, and you're very passionate about it. Why don't you also lead the training team? which is fantastic because now I'm the director of security for the company, but I'm also now the director of training for the company. So I was promoted into another position. So that's a unique situation scenario, but you never know what will become of it. If you go to a team that really has to offer a service for the company and you say, I want to support you in what you're doing, 
I have knowledge and skills. I don't want to just have a seat at the table. I have something to offer. And you show, you. oh yeah. Another important thing about training is you show, don't tell. So a lot of it's showmanship. You don't tell them what they need to learn. This is why audio visual is so important. You just make it. You make the training module and you say, this is what I want to offer you. And that's what, you know, that was my approach with everything I've ever done. So I never told someone, this is how I can support you, or this is how I can help you. I would just make the product that would serve them. And then I just delivered them the product and I say, what do you think of this? And it can be presumptuous, or they could never open it or reject it. So maybe you theoretically wasted your time. But if you learn something from the experience, you didn't waste your time. So I think it it does pay to put some work into it and show, don't tell as you build a training program. I forget that was a very important facet of the way I I train people. Well, Adam, I think that it's very telling. This is also a lesson for our listeners that you went beyond the scope of your title to partner with others. And I want to add that your promotion, I believe, is within your first eight months at GoFundMe, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, correct. I mean, that's yeah. pretty remarkable. So if you're listening to this, this is how you get promoted. You're connecting with others in a very obviously respectful way to partner with them. And uh, I think that's a great note to end on. Fantastic. Yeah, Adam, it's really great to see you again. And I know you'll be back because we have other topics to cover. So I just wanted to see if there's anything else that you wanted to mention, any other advice to job seekers as far as training programs, what they should be asking? You know, one thing I would really say to job seekers is you might categorize yourself. You might say, I'm an accountant or, you know, I am one thing. And I think being one thing these days is not enough. And I don't mean to overwhelm anyone, but I think you should possibly try to be two things. And I think you've got to look at what are their skill sets or what's the passion that you have. Like I've always been a security professional, but before I was a security professional, I was a training professional and I love both fields equally. I made sure that I always was developing both skill sets at the same time because that's job security. So I would ask your listeners to think very carefully about what else they're passionate about and try to wear two hats if possible. Try to be two things and not one thing. Don't be just an HR person or don't be just a, an accountant or just don't be just a computer programmer. Try to think what else you can be so there's a diversification of your skill offerings. And that's job security because you never know what's going to happen. Let's face it, like I'm a security professional, but a lot of companies are probably going to go in the direction of not having brick and mortar offices anymore. And more mm-hmm. and more, we're going to see a workforce working from home. And before I know it, there's no buildings there's no workplaces at some point. So there's no need for security guards and cameras and access control systems and policies and that sort of thing. So all of a sudden, my entire livelihood would disappear beneath my feet. And if I was just one thing, I would be worried. But the fact that I'm two things, I'm also an instructional designer, and I've spent equal amount of time developing that part of me. I just know that training, no matter what happens to the workforce, whether we're working from home or anywhere, employees are always going to need training and development. So if there's no need for security uh, directors anymore, then I'll just be like, hey, I'm just a full-time L&D professional, learning and development professional. I'm A-OK. And I can sleep easier at night. And I do quite well at night. So I think that's why. So I would I would think that's probably good advice for your listeners. I don't want to overwhelm them, but I think they should try to wear two hats if you can. I think that's a really good advice for job security. I love that. I love ending on that, Adam. 
Can you also tell people how to reach you? Because you're very generous with your connections. Absolutely. Yeah. Just, I would say the easiest way is just find me on LinkedIn. So you can just, my name is Adam Korn. Uh, the last name is Corn, just like the you know grain, I guess, or you know, <laughs> vegetable who you speak to. So C O R N. You can find me on LinkedIn. Please feel free to send me a friend request or message me or both. And I'm more than happy to talk to anyone. Uh, I like supporting other people in their job search. You know, I've been in situations where I've needed a job. I've been in situations where I've been unhappy in a job and I wanted a new one. And Emily's always, you know, you've always been here to support me. You've done it in most cases just out of the goodness of your heart. So I like to pay that forward and extend that to other people and always willing to help others in need. Okay. Well, thank you again, Adam, for taking the time to talk to me. It was a really fun conversation. Absolutely. Great to see you again. Thanks for listening to this episode of Career Cohort. I'm Emily Wong. You can find all of my podcasts and blog posts at wordsofdistinction.net. And if you'd like to chat about how I can help you define the next step in your career, head over to the same website and book a time on my calendar for a free consultation to discuss how I can help you achieve your goals. Please be sure to share, subscribe, rate, and review so we can continue to bring you great content. Thank you.